Welcome to Public Servants Announcements. This week's episode, we have another special guest. And I know the last few special guests that we've had, when I say special, I mean that they're special to me because they're, I mean, the last three guests we've had are someone whose kids I coached, a principal that I worked for for almost a decade, and then my cousin, who is also a principal. This person I met at a basketball tournament, and she was bubbly and personality. And she talked to me and we exchanged contact information. And almost a full year later, I reached out and was like, hey, I have this podcast. And she was like, sure, let me join, let me jump on. So today we have Dr. Maisha Applewhite on the podcast with us. Thank you, hello, hello. Thank you for the invitation to the space. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you joining us. And so I would like you to just give give our listeners just a little bit about you. What is it that you do that makes you a public servant? Um, and how did you get here? How did you get to this spot? Wow. How did I get here? That's a long story, but I'll try to surmise it. <laughs> For the listeners, um, I have a PhD in criminology and a master's in psychology. So I kind of joined my two loves of just mainly, I guess, my first love, which is studying human behavior. Um, but I'm an East Texas country girl. I'm a, I'm a twin, grew up with a single mom and hardworking family union and, and a beautiful grandmother. I pay homage to her. She passed away in October of this year. Um, so thank you, grandmother. And I have just worked my way up. Um, just grew up in a small town that was pretty much swayed, if you will, in terms of ethnicity. Grew up in a very small East Texas town, as I stated, and I knew education was the best route for me because if not, it was the chicken plant, <laughs> it was the refinery, um, it was staying at home and possibly, you know, just having. Um, probably like a dead end, just really, you know, nothing wrong with the working at the chicken plant or the refinery, but I knew my sister, my sister and I both, I have a twin sister, um, and we knew we wanted something more. We, we knew we wanted something more. So I graduated from Prairie View A&M University. So I got my experience there as a, um, with bachelor's in psychology, and then I went to Nebraska, Okay. I won't, I have to pause for Nebraska, okay? Just the demographics alone, okay? I'm African American and I can, except when I went to Nebraska, I everything changed for me. The, the light was open, but I was a Ronald E. McNair scholar. And I got that opportunity through a statistics professor at Prairie View. I would have never gotten probably out of the state of Texas, but God ordained that. And so went to Nebraska State there, got my master's, and then I just wasn't done. I wanted to get my PhD. So I kind of bumbled around, became a juvenile probation officer. Um, just, I was homeless <laughs> and probably drinking a little more because I was depressed about having a master's degree when I moved back to Texas and no job, right? Because it was pie in the sky. I, I've been taught, go get your education, go get your education. And then when I came back to Texas without a teacher certification, um, it was hard for me to get a job. So then um, became a juvenile probation officer. First, I worked with people that had HIV and AIDS. Then I met some people at a at a health fair or something that that um, were part of the juvenile department. And then when I went there, I met someone who said, hey, you want to get into the PhD program at the University of Texas at Dallas? Just come join me. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. But life happened in the midst of all that. So I stopped working as a juvenile probation officer and then um, got married, had my son, and just life kept happening. And so it took me about 10 years to get my PhD, but it's done. And now I'm an educator with Dallas County. I mean, with Dallas College, excuse me, with, with Dallas College, which is formerly um, Dallas Community College. Yeah, Dallas, Dallas County, County Community, Community College. Colleges. Yes, so now it's Dallas College at Change. Yeah, DCCD. So I have been a psychology professor and now I'm a criminal justice uh, professor, professor there. Mm -hmm. So that's my route. So we have an educator slash juvenile detention officer slash student, mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people underestimate how important it is just to be a student. Yeah. So 
I am someone who like I'm pretty much done with school. I have two master's degrees, and I just I don't want to go back. I don't, I just, like it may happen. I'm still young. I, it may happen, but I don't. I I like not having to go to class and turn in assignments and do all the things. But I love learning, and so I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of just being a lifelong learner and extending your learning out past what's required into what is interesting to you, into what is important to you. So what would you, like, what is something that gives you joy about teaching? Because you're a psychology teacher, which that's where you got your bachelor's and your master's. So what is so important about teaching that and giving that gift to others? Well, God gave me the gift of joy. I just realized that at 45. <laughs> 45. I gave me the gift of joy. I have it. Can't purchase it. I don't I'm care how many Tory I don't care if you put me in a Honda or a um Toyota or a Lexus or whatever, a Bogatti, whatever they make that stuff. I have joy. I have the gift of joy. You cannot purchase it. Okay. So I bring that into the classroom. And what I enjoy about learning that is a bi-directional process. And what I mean by that is that give a little, receive a little. So I expect enlightenment. I teach with passion and I enjoy the growth. That's what I love about, about education and just mainly learning and knowing that people can inside, you know, in, inside of themselves, realize that they can define their own destiny. I love that. I love when the light bulb just turns on. See, y'all can't see Dr. Maisha. But she don't look like she's enjoyed five, 45 years of anything. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a joy. Maybe, maybe 30. But Dr. Aisha maybe. said she has enjoyed 45 years of joy. And I just, I'm not going to call her no liar in this public forum. <laughs> but I can Thank also you. see her. And Glory so, to God. But I love that. Like as a teacher myself, I love when teachers say, no, I just, I just love seeing the light go off. I just love being able to pass on. Cause I have that same thing. Like I just love being alive. Like I love living. I love the fact that God has graced me with the ability to continue to breathe because mm -hmm. I've done enough in life to where I don't deserve breath anymore, but I just keep getting it. <laughs> and so I just, I just feel like it's my duty to just keep passing that on to other people. Like we're here and none of us, at this point, none of us deserve breath. We, we are just living on borrowed time. Okay. So let's make the best of it. And I, I don't think a lot of people hear that on a regular basis. And I don't think even more than hearing it, a lot of people feel that. Mm -hmm. And I know just from the short encounters I've had with you, the one encounter in person and then the one encounter now virtually, you, you exude just joy Thank and you. just Thank abundance you. and it's amazing mm -hmm. to be around that and so I'm sure your students feed mm -hmm. off of that energy and it's it's a it's an excitement to come to class mm -hmm. it is and I try to make sure I'm authentic so um even when I have down moments I try not to have down days <laughs> but down moments or I'll tell my students up front you know this is what you're going to get every day because you're in college you're an adult you're an adulto you can choose to not take my class <laughs> so some of them are like mm, you mean miss I'm like no it's just you get choices right and I'm not gonna change I'm, I'm gonna be who I am I'm comfortable being who I am but if my personality style my teaching style does not work for you then then of course you you can change however most students stay and some of them fail my class and come back and take me again <laughs> I'm like what's wrong with you <laughs> you know but they, they do. And it's because I really do try to come from a very authentic uh, place because life hadn't always been, you know, gumdrops and lollipops. Right. See, so mm -hmm. we're eight minutes in and I, I had to interrupt Dr. Applewhite just because mm -hmm. when I thought I was when I when I reached out to Dr. Applewhite to do this podcast. I thought I was going to be an educator talking to an educator and we were going to talk about education and the system and what what college professors are expecting from high school students. But I can see now eight minutes in. That's not where this podcast is going. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. Y'all heard Dr. Applewhite. Y'all heard education. 
We are not about to talk about it. It's not happening. The questions are posted on my phone, but the ones that are pop- sometimes, sometimes Jesus says, Mm-mm, I have different news I need for you to share wow. today. And Jesus, the sun is shining. I'm sitting outside in Beautiful. Texas on December 28th. And the sun has said, Mm-mm, get comfortable. Because you have 45 minutes to let Dr. Applewhite preach to these people. <laughs> so I need you. So t- you said it's not always been gumdrops, but you try not to have, and this this was a moment for me, and I tried not to show it on my face. She said, I try not to have down days, but when I have down moments, I try to be authentic. I let my kids know, I let my students know how. What is that like? How do you get to a place where you're comfortable being who you are and being authentic in who you are? Okay. Albert Ellis, a psychologist, came up with rational emotive behavioral therapy, right? And how we break that down is the ABC theory, right? As opposed to saying REBT, it morphed into ABC. You have a an emotion, a belief, and then a consequence, right? Your affect, your belief, and consequence. So one of the beliefs that I have adopted is that I'm fragile and that I'm fallible. So you can't hurt my feelings. You can't tell me nothing that I don't already know about myself because I already know that I'm a fallible creature. And because there's no one perfect but Christ, throw me in that imperfect box, right? So I had to develop that belief system in order to be be able to stand in my truth because I don't self-medicate. Right. There have been moments of like, wow, I wish <laughs> I wish I had a little more crown. I wish I had a desire for it, but I don't, thank God. But I'm saying if I could medicate and just, mm-hmm. you know, just how can I say, just um suppress, mm-hmm. but I'm open to say, hey, I'm down today, or my anxiety is up today. And I speak it, I acknowledge it, and then I have a healthy way of dealing with it. But again, I'm not going to bring that to my students. So if I say, hey, I need a mental health day. So it's not in the calendar, but take out your phones. We're not going to have class on Tuesday because Dr. Applewhite needs a mental health day. It's better for everybody. So that's, that's I had to adopt that belief in order to make sure that I could stand in my truth. And it's been better because I don't have to be perfect. Oh, I believe you. I believe you because I've been there and I remember it was I'm 30 now so it was I was 25 so it was five years ago I sat in my classroom and I had just had and I looked at my class and they were like Mr. Smith what's wrong you look sad you're normally so happy and I was like I I, I am trying to be happy I just don't I don't know where to get the happiness from (laughs) and I don't have it and my kids were like what? You run out of half? I was like, yeah. and we spent the whole class and I told them about my history with depression and how I've been literally clinically diagnosed with depression and had to go through anger management, had to go through counseling. Like I go to a counselor once a week for now and I had to talk to them. They were like, you would have never guessed. And I was like, because, and they were like, so have you been faking it? No, I generally love what I do and I genuinely love being here. And so I really am excited and happy like that all the time. But there are times when I go home or there are times when I'm not here doing what I love doing that are just dark and I can't control it and I haven't learned how to get through it yet. And we had a conversation and I was teaching eighth graders at the time. So I'm, I'm sitting in a room with 13 and 14 year olds and they're like, sometimes I just feel dark too. I don't know how to explain it. Like I don't have the words for it. But when my mom asks me what's wrong, I don't have an answer. But then she gets upset because I'm clearly emotional, but I don't know why. And I was like, I get it. So how about, let, let's hear, this is what I look at. And I had some students who were more religious. I'm very spiritual. I'm very religious. I pray. I read the Bible. Me and God have a very close, tight-knit relationship because we talk several times a day. His phone is always busy with me on the line. And so... <laughs> I, I, some of my students like, hey, I know your parents go to church. Like, I've talked to you and your parents. I know y'all are religious people. You need to pray. But I have some who are a little less religious or not religious. And I tell them, say, 
meditate. You need to sit by yourself and you need to think through your emotions. And just because you're thinking through them doesn't mean you'll come out of them with the resolution or with the response. And you have to be okay with that too. We have to get to a point, like for me, and I told them this at 25, for me, I am just now getting to a point where I'm okay not having the answer to why I feel this way. And they were like, oh, it's okay not to know why you feel a way. It sure seemed like it, it better be. <laughs> it better be because I don't, I don't have the answer. And so being that authentic, that changed the way I taught kids. It changed the way I behaved in the classroom because I was able to go into a classroom and say, listen, today, I don't have it. And it's, so I'm not, I'm not a college professor, so I don't get to just cancel class for everybody. Well, I would have, trust me. But I, I did have to say, look, I'm here because I know if I take off today, there would be no substitute and y'all would be in here running amok. I don't have nothing to give today. I want to give, but my cup is empty. So I need, it's Friday, this weekend, I'm going to go fill my cup, both literally and spiritually. And when I come back Monday, I will have a full cup to pour out, but right now I don't have nothing to give to you. I want to, but I can't. And my students responded to that. Is that something you found as well in your classroom? Yeah, because I had a recent experience because I'm in criminal justice. My classroom is adjacent to the police training site, right? Or it could we could hear gunshots, you know, pretend, you know, pseudo gunshots. And one of my students said, Miss, are we gonna be hearing that the whole classroom and look like something came over him? But again, I don't know my students' background like that because again, they're adults and they can they only share what they're comfortable of sharing, right? Right. I try to make sure that I promote that safe uh, space and safe place for them to talk about what's important to them, right? Or what they want to share. Absolutely. But I just stood there frozen and I was like, okay, if we all need to go, we, we can go. If we need to go have class outside. Learning still has to happen, but let's be flexible. But again, out of my peripheral, I didn't realize that I had a student over there probably replaying some trauma. I Absolutely. didn't know, but I, I stopped my class to say, hey, I didn't realize this fall, but again, I'm not perfect. I did not realize it, that these gunshots, these pseudo, these training shots would evoke some type of trauma response. Right. I said, so, OK, this is what we're going to do. And I just talk calmly and I just make sure I was OK, make sure that they were OK. But it, 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 it recently happened. But but that's that's why I want to go back to. Sometimes we often. How can I say this the, the prudent way? We forget. And I think we, we talked about this, that teachers are human, but we have a lot on our plates mentally. And not only do we have to have it mentally, but even in our craft, we have to be able to rejogatize, to explain, to re-explain information. We actually have to teach, but not only that, we have to be and have antennas, emotional antennas for every student that's in our classroom. How can yeah. I talk about the theory of crime or that J.F. Hoover was one of the, you know, the founding people for the FBI if I have to, you know, attend to the trauma response? Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? But that's why in education, I don't think we put enough emphasis, and maybe this is where our project will, will lead us, is that we need to put enough emphasis on the foundation of the teacher. I can't be a good educator if I don't have a good foundation right? If I'm edgy, if I have anxiety to where I can't maintain it, because I, I have anxiety, but if I can't have maintainable, you know, good mental health, then I'm, I'm, I can't be utilized, right? And I, I think we overlook that when it comes to educators. We expect for them to, we just throw our kids in them for eight hours and be like, okay, you, you handle them. And I, I just think we over, we overlook the huge responsibility that teachers have. I, I think maybe we started out with it in 1930, 40, 40, and then it just waned, waxed and waned yeah. over time. What's happened is we focus so much in the turn of the century on the information because there is more information to give that we have had to, we don't, the time hasn't changed. So we still only have a finite amount of time with an infinite amount of information to give. So we have to cut something out. And 
they've cut out the important parts. Because most teachers would say in your situation, well, yes, this is where our classroom is. And if you're studying this, you may want to go and research why you're having that traumatic response. But as for me and my class, we have to move forward. If this is not the class for you, you may want to schedule a different teacher at a different time so that you're in a different area. But we have to keep pushing. What you said is, no, I have to attend to your needs immediately because this is immediate need. Trauma is critical right now. And so that is what I think not separates a good educator from a bad educator, but a good human from a bad human. I think we've gotten to the point, even in small Facebook debates, where we've we've blurred the line between what it means to assess where someone is in life and approach them from that aspect and from that angle. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And And I think that probably is the hallmark of my teaching is I'm very person centered. I was going to say student, student centered. No, I'm to the person i have fa- i have students who have family members who own a five-day hike to get here to the united states mm-hmm. you know they don't pay some coyote <laughs> some money mm-hmm. and they're waiting on a, a uncle a cousin a brother somebody to show up these are real i deal with real humans you know people mm-hmm. exactly persons so and i have some people who somebody just just got out of jail on Monday and they come to class on Tuesday or, you know, somebody's sick or I had one student, I I hated to see her, you know, fail, but she had too many family responsibilities, you know? So Mm -hmm. I I couldn't compensate for that. Um, I try to make sure I leave my time or due dates open to compensate for real life happening, but it just kind of took her away. So I try to make sure that I'm student that, that I'm person-centered or student-centered for, for educators' sake, you know. Um, the other thing I was going to add um, real quick is that it became about money. It became about funding. So in my opinion, once we walked away from the humanism, if you will, um, we it was geared toward funding. Well, funding is substantiated by test scores. And then if you don't have those test scores, then how can you get the funding? Right. So it was about just disseminating information is it wasn't about the full process of yeah, if I got I gave you the information now, do you really understand it? And then do you know really how to process the information? Right. So as an educator, as as someone who went through education, like you said, it took 10 years to get your doctorate. How do you work with students? Because I, I know just because I'm from the area that Dallas College has a lot of, like a huge diverse student population from students straight out of high school who are just here to get their associates before they go to college, all the way to people who went to high school, went to college, had kids, now they're back in college for the third or fourth time and maybe a lot of stuff has happened in between. But So you get students from 18 to 50, 60, 70 years old. How do you handle all of the students how do you reach each student where they are let me see how do i do that pragmatically well first i come in as myself hey this is me how y'all doing (laughs) come in just like that um i also do an activity on the first day of class that allows them to write down three unique things about themselves so i try to make sure i bring each individual person to the space and create a safe space a safe space for them to be able to converse in the classroom third i create classroom rules and this was a huge jump because they have never heard of it at least from the angle that i approach it i just stand at the board and say what rules do y'all want to apply to this space what what would make you get more acclimated or feel space to the teaching and learning process how you gonna learn up in here Right. And I speak a little little ghetto sometimes, some people would say, but <laughs> I break it down all the way down. OK, how would you feel safe up in here? Mm-hmm. So they would say, well, um, well, make sure we be on time or and, and my biggest one is no judgment. So no matter what you say, how you say it, well, at least we have to be respectful because that's norm- normally a rule. Um, but the last one is just no judgment. 
so you can say how you feel because we're talking about criminal justice in the light of everything you know post COVID, post George Floyd, um, and and everyone else. Uh, pay homage to them um, that have um, have passed away of transition at the hands of police. So we have to create a space where everyone feels comfortable to say how they feel. But so so I present myself um, authentically and then I allow them to bring their whole selves into the space and then we allow classroom rules and they come up with them. First, they're shocked because they're like, what are you asking us? And I have to right. stand there and break it down because <laughs> they're like, nobody's ever asked me this before. I'm like, this is your environment. This is our space. We're family now. We're going to be mm -hmm. family. But those are those are the three pragmatic things I do. And then for me personally, I just try to make sure I'm consistent. Absolutely. I don't show up the same person every day. So it's amazing that what you're doing at the college level is something I've done at the middle school and the high school level. And even more than like as a basketball coach, I've done it. Like every summer when I start with a new team, hey, what are your expectations for the year? What do you want practice to look like? What are some of your expectations for practice? What do you think that I should be doing? Here's what I think you should be doing. How do we work together to accomplish these things? Like, what does it look like to be a set? And what amazes me every year is that it changes class by class, year by year. I mean, I have literally in, I guess we're going on year 10 now, right? So I did eight years and then two years as an administrator, never had two classes with the same set of rules. No. And some classes wanted me to be, well, you're really hyper. So you can speak with that volume and that intensity, but we need you to be seated the whole class. Those were usually first period classes. Like you just, you're, it's 7.30 and you're like all the way there. I need you to, and then some of my later classes were like, no, walk on the tables, stand on the desk, turn the music up, all of the, all the things, do all of it and give us the energy because we need the energy. We've been here all day. And so I was able to both be who I was and cultivate my environment to meet the needs of the people that were in, because it's their environment too. And I think as adults in the classroom, we're here all day. And so we think this is my room, but when they come in, it's their room. And they have to be comfortable. They have to be safe. They have to feel wanted and appreciated in the space, right? And so it's amazing to me that y'all are doing this at the college. I don't know if everyone's doing it, but that you're doing this at the college level because it should be a widespread practice. I agree. I agree. But not everybody has that, has put that importance mm -hmm. on person-centered right? And making sure it's a bi-directional process. The other thing I had to do is the phone, right? So I tell them, okay, you don't want me teaching you about the three components of the criminal justice system with my phone in my hand. So I literally tell them the three components of the criminal justice system and I have my phone in my hand. And I'm like, okay, so how are you supposed to learn with your phone in your hand? You know, just, just very pragmatic, very simple, Respect mm -hmm. is bi-directional. I'm not going to come in here with my cell phone. But if I do, I'll tell them the reason why my cell phone is out. Hey, it's an orange mm -hmm. day. My son has asthma. And I'm on. I'm his first contact. I'm his emergency mm -hmm. contact. But respect is bi-directional. Teaching, teaching and learning process is bi-directional. I'm not going to tell you to do something and not do it or ask for you to do something and not do it myself. So I don't ever have my cell phone out. Now, some would say that might not be safe because I might need to call the police. Well, they got phones in, in the classroom, you know, now. But I, I never, I didn't have that type of fear. But I, I did, I was more on the respect and just common sense than, than anything, you know, than that fear right. of that I need my phone with me, you know. And it really is just putting yourself on equal ground with the student which some, some teachers will hear this and they'll be like, well, she teaches college students, they're adults, they are on equal ground. But realistically, it's still teacher-student. And whether I was teaching sixth graders or 12th graders, I felt like if I respect you, you'll respect me back. If, I set, if we set classroom rules, I have to follow them too. So if one of the rules is no eating, I can't eat either. So that's never going to be a rule because I like to eat all day, every day. 
And so we not going to have that. That rule just can't be one of the rules. We right. going to eat in here. Right. It, is, it is what it is. Just not one of the rules. Maybe throw your trash away. And if you don't throw your trash away, you lose your eating privileges. Right. But and the I rest had a of student, us eat. Yeah, I had a student that said no, no profanity. And I just absolutely said, no, I'm going to say the D word and the S word. I'm, I'm probably sure I'm going to do that. But I can meet you in the middle and I won't ever say F-bombs in here. And I don't think that's appropriate when you're educated. It shouldn't be too many MFs and AFs and all of that. I said, we won't have that. But I'm going to say the little S word and the D word. Okay. And he said, cool. I said, can we handle that? He was like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> she, said, she said the the little S word and the little D word. The little D no word. F, no F bombs. <laughs> no S F- word and the little D word. The little D those. word. <laughs> and depending on how they press me that day, I might say it and be like, Lord, work, continue to work on me. You know? <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it depends, but you're right. I, I like that. We can come to a compromise that's mm-hmm. doable. Because I'm never, I'm not going to agree to something that I can't do. Right. Because I'm just setting myself up for failure and I'm setting you up to look down on me for failing at something I knew I wasn't going to accomplish. And that's not fair to me or you. Because you have expectations of me as a teacher that I am going to be at a certain level. And so if I don't hold myself to that level, it, it, it disappoints you. And I don't want to disappoint you as a teacher. That's not my job. So let's get into the weeds, the, the criminology of it all, because you you definitely have talked about some of the things that y'all touch on. And so I want to hear just your perspective as an educator of criminology on just police officering. I don't even know if that's an actual verb or what I want to ask, but I love police officers. Some of my dearest friends are police officers. I have people that I highly respect as police officers. I am still terrified of police officers. Just as a black man, I know that any any encounter with a police officer is more likely to end in my death than if I was someone else. And so it's terrifying. And I know part of that is media driven and part of it's not as true as it may seem, but it also is true. Like the statistics do back it up. And so what are just some of your perspectives? I know you're here in Dallas. And so we just had the uh, Breonna Taylor judgment, the case ruling and all of those things just, and we've had a few, we've had uh, Ahmaud Arbery. We've had a ton of cases just in our local precinct that I just, I want to know your perspective. So what are some of the things that you are seeing and some of the things that y'all talk about in your classroom? Well, first I had to admit how it impacted my son, right? And again, just being authentic, it impacted him. I mean, we, I got, we got stopped by the police um, about six months ago and he put his hands up on the dashboard and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was, I ran a red light. We were coming from Chick-fil-A. I was eating French fries, wasn't paying attention. And he put his hands up and I'm like, Joseph, I realize that's part of your reality, but let's walk through this. I'm not going to ever shame you. The way you feel is, I I, I tell everyone, your feelings are never wrong. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Your feelings are never wrong. How you act on that could lead to right or wrong, but your feelings are never wrong, right? At least that's that's my belief system. Your feelings are facts. I had an argument with a friend. Feelings are facts. I know he will listen to this. Feelings are facts. Feelings are facts. However, you facilitate it. See, people don't like responsibility. So I'm not going to go down that trap. But I'm saying <laughs> most people don't want to tell, don't want to hear how I feel because they know they've facilitated some of my feelings and they don't want to take responsibility for facilitating. Okay. Because the reason why I use the word facilitating, no one has control over how I think or feel. That's my responsibility. You can facilitate right. it. Okay. Even Christmas Day, someone tried to take me there. I decided to grab my purse and walk outside. You're, I'm not a remote control. I'm not a thermometer. I'm a thermostat. You cannot tell me how I'm, I'm going to feel. You cannot move me to feel a certain way. I'm responsible for that. Now, how I let you do that is another thing, but you will facilitate it. 
Okay, I'm gonna close that. So you are a facilitator and my feelings are real. Okay, whether you want to take responsibility for that, it's totally different. So yes, that applies to my son. How he felt was real at the time. But the, the police officer was African-American. Sometimes statistics show that that won't really be a huge variable um, because they are still wearing the blue, right? Mm -hmm. But this worked out perfectly for us, but I still had to address my son's trauma, right? Because we knew that policing, we do know the history of policing in the United States that it started out with slave patrol. So we do realize that that's, that's a sore for historically for policing in the United States. They have tried or police agencies have tried to make sure that they uh, address the community or try to build a relationship with the community, but the happenings uh, just don't help. Seeing George Floyd murdered on video did not help, okay? Those are facts. So I tried to make sure that I addressed that with my son. And I, I even told my students that. So I try to make sure that I create that space to acknowledge how they feel and never make them feel wrong for that. So I do have some students that say, I don't like the police. On the other side, I do have to admit that the first people that I'm going to call if someone breaks in my house are the police. I'm not going to call Ray Ray and Nug Nug. They can't go get them. So I do have to acknowledge. And we have to be clear in our thinking that they're bad humans in every profession that's the reality of it so where i promote my students is to be different and our first thing we talk about is the fact that you if you're going to go into policing that you need to be a good human that's the only way we're going to change it because remember when policing started even with under robert peel um bringing it over from from england again this is for the united states is that um it was grandfathered in you know, like, oh, my grandfather's a police officer. They didn't have to do anything. Now it's changing to where they have to become more educated, 40 to 65 hours, depending on what agency. But it was about who you know. And if you were a white male, you became a police officer if your granddaddy was a police officer. Okay. Well, <laughs> we don't fit that demographic, right? Um, right. So they have to make work harder on to get a, a more diverse uh, police agency. So first, just acknowledging it. We, we knew it was already going on as African-Americans. We already knew that. But George Floyd, just like us crossing over the the, Sam, the, the Edmonds Pattis uh, Bridge, it just put it on TV. Yeah. That's, that's why Lyndon B. had to sign in the, the Civil Rights Movement. It just put it on TV. That's it. That's that was the only difference. But we had to respond after that. That was that was the take. Yeah, I have a lot of students because I was at I was I started my private school and was at my private school when George Floyd happened because it happened during COVID, and so my kids weren't in school. Although I was still teaching at the public school, we weren't in school physically, and so I was at home, and I was one of the people who happened to be scrolling through Instagram and Facebook. And when George Floyd was happening, I saw it live. So I didn't see the recorded video later. I saw the live happening. And I'm on FaceTime with my sister on my iPad, on Facebook with my, on Facebook on my computer watching this and texting my friends on my phone. And I'm like, Y'all, something is happening, but I don't, I can't tell if it's real or if it's fake because it doesn't seem like this should be, like, it seems so drastic that it has to be fake, but the people in the atmosphere seem to have a real fear happening. And so I don't know. And I watched, I, like, I, my sister, like, had to call me later that night because she was like, I didn't watch it. I was just on FaceTime with you but I could see you change physically because I watched five and a half minutes of the seven minutes. And so I, so, like, I literally watched someone die. That's what, that's what I mean. So that changes the whole perspective, not just on criminal justice, but just mental health period, just yes. having trauma, trauma. You, you can be traumatized getting on Instagram now. That's, that's the point. You know, and yeah. so you can't remove that from the student. Just when they come in the classroom, don't remove you. You can't pull off the trauma hat when they come into the classroom. 
Right. Um, so I never made my students feel something or that, or other than what they felt. So we had to talk about police. And, and then I invite police officers in and they know there's no way they can build that bridge again with the community unless they try. They know that. Right. And that's been my that's been my thing when when I talk to students and even some adults, I try not to talk to adults too much because adults get stuck in their ways and it's just an argument that never ends on the Facebook. And so I just I avoid them. <laughs> but when I'm talking to students and the adults who are willing to listen, I ask them, how many police officers do you know? Personally? Like, how many have you spoken to in real life? Not when they stopped you, but at Walmart or at church or at the basketball game. How many police officers have you met on equal footing where you hadn't done something wrong for them to have to do their job? Because it is their job to make sure you're following the laws. And so before we started recording, I, I was telling you about earlier this week or when y'all hear this two weeks from now, two weeks ago, I was stopped by the police officer and I had broken, I was speeding, I was. And I'm like, I saw him and then I looked at my speedometer and was like, damn, I'm going 15 miles over the speeding limit on a road. Like it's 35 and I'm going 53, so 18 miles over the speed limit. Like I'm going fast. He's going to stop me. Check your attitude now because you're wrong. And in my head, I gave myself all these excuses. It's really not my fault. I'm not even pushing the gas. I'm going down a hill. I'm, I just, I would have to be on the brake. The car's right behind me. If I get on my brake, they would hit me. I gave myself all the excuses. It didn't change the facts. I was breaking the law. It is his job to stop me from breaking the law. When he stopped me, we went through a bunch of things. And as he continued to do his job, I felt myself getting more angry, but I had to continue reminding myself, he, this is not personal for him. He's doing his job. And in fact, after he finished doing his job, and everything was taken care of, he came to me and said, I'm sorry I had to do that, but it, it is literally out of my hands. Like I was as lenient as I possibly could have been. But in that, I also told him, look, I'm terrified. Like I told him, I'm terrified. Like I, I know I'm sounding hostile, but it's not at you. I'm just, I'm scared. And when I get scared, I start talking faster and my pitch rises. And it's not that I'm angry. like, you're asking me to get out of my car and you're asking me if you can search because y'all have to do all, like you, you're following your procedures. And I know I'm not doing, like there is nothing legal. You won't find anything in this car, but I'm terrified. And that's why you're getting this response. It's not you. Please just give me that link. And I told him, I said, please give me the leniency to be upset because I am, this isn't a good situation. But I've gone through anger management. I've, I am a restorative practice specialist. Like I've done all the things, right? And so I know how to control my emotions. There are so many people out there who don't. And so they can't verbalize, I'm reacting like this because I'm scared because they don't know. And if you keep feeding your brain, if the police, they pigs, they dogs, no offense to rap music. I know that's probably the core of it. And yes, that's based off of off of experiences mm -hmm. but what i'm saying that that those rap songs don't help me when i'm stopped by the police you you see right. what i'm saying pragmatically yes i have a right to be upset yes i I'm, I'm upset i have a right yes i have a right to be afraid because of what i've seen okay mm -hmm. however i have to create this isolated situation this is an isolated situation. I can't be mad at him because he's a white police officer and y'all just, y'all have raped our ancestors. Yes, that's the truth. However, this particular happening in 2022, how can I create the most optimal outcome for me? So what I walked through with my son after George Floyd is how he can come home. You don't need to take it out on the officers all the years of oppression. No, that is not the time to do that. Ask them if you can sit on the curb because you are a minor. You have to know your rights. That's the other thing. But it all goes back to education. Number one, educating yourself on how to monitor your emotions. Number two, being able to ed educate yourself around your rights. The fifth, the fourth, the eighth, the sixth amendment. You have to know your rights. Get out of Instagram for a little bit. Yes, I'm about to get on the soapbox and read. Have YouTube read it to you about your rights 
as a human if you come in contact with the police. You have a right to be heard. You have a right to understand why you've been stopped. You have a right not to be interrogated without an attorney present. Okay, know your rights. However, you also have to know if you already have a jaded perspective with police officers. Yes, it's substantiated by legitimate concerns. Yes, it is. However, how can you create the most optimal outcome with this occurrence now today? Okay, as an African-American woman after Sandra Bland, I don't, I am within my right to dislike all police officers. However, if I was ever stopped, when I'm stopped again, I will create it as an isolated situation and be educated in that moment. I will be courteous. I'll be kind because I want to go home and I want them to go home. This is a human and I'm a human. If it goes awry, I also know my rights. So that's 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 what I mean about me being definitely on this page about being educated. I don't care how many degrees you have, how many degrees you do not have. You get your mind right, your relationship with Christ. Um, I have to have that. You have to have a foundation. You have to be educated and you need to be educated about your money. That's our currency in the United States. So you get them three handled, we good. With a degree or uh, uh, without, without a degree. I've met some people who have degrees that are totally not educated, but they have right. a degree. They're not educated, right? So when, when it comes to police officers, we as African-Americans have a history, a long substantiated history as to why we don't have to like any police officer. However, their main job is to serve and protect. And you have to know your rights. That, that, I'm big on that. Start out with the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the eighth amendment. If you just know those, you'll be good. I spend a lot of time on due process in my class. I'm, I'm passionate about the fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth amendment. And now because of, of DACA or or um dual city of, of citizenship, the the third the the course we need to know the 13th and the 14th amendment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That that's so important. I think you hit on something when you said um that we we have a right to be afraid of police officers based on the statistics and the history that we are told and we are taught and the history that's passed down and we some experience. of it is passed and some of it's passed down unknowingly just watching when you're a child watching your parents interact with police officers when they're stopped you you read their mannerisms and you're taught that that's how you're supposed to respond to it but I had a police officer check me one day. And this is a friend of mine. We weren't in police. Like he wasn't giving me a ticket. We were just, we were talking. And this is right after they had the shooting in Dallas. So I was in New York. As, I lived in Dallas, but I happened to be in New York that day. The person who did the shooting in Dallas when they shot the police officers in downtown was a classmate of mine. Like we graduated high school together. Um, and he knew that. So he reached out to me and was like, hey, what is like, what can we do better? Because I don't know. Like as a police officer, he, he said to me, as a police officer, I don't know what we can do better. And I said, well, as a teacher, I would say we have to be more personable as a black man. I don't think they're like, I don't know. I don't have the answer. And he's and I like, you have to understand that we are scared of you. And he said back to me, you have to understand that we are scared of you. The same statistics you read, we have those same statistics. The statistics that we're fed are that black men are more dangerous than other groups of people. And I said, you know, no, they don't tell us that in the news. Like we, I don't feel dangerous. <laughs> like when I'm, when I'm just living life, I don't feel dangerous. He said, and when I'm just doing my job, I don't feel dangerous. And I said, you know what? Okay. I'm in this conversation because you're right, but I can't admit that you're right right now because I'm angry. But he was super right, like in the moment, the statistics for them are the same as they are for us. That we are the more dangerous species, but that's because we are more scared. And even in the animal kingdom, people reacting out of fear are more dangerous than any other group of people. Animals reacting out of fear are stronger, they're more courageous, they're more willing to take risks. They are, it's different. Your mind switches when your fear jumps in. And so I think that's important for us to recognize we have to be calm so that they can be calm. But I think even more important, 
officers have to recognize they, because they have the power, have to stay calm so that we can stay calm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 um, Shelman, it all goes back down to bias, mm-hmm. right? And if we feed our bias, that's what we're going to act on. Remember ABC theory, you know, affective uh, behavior, you know, and then a consequence or a response. If we feed that belief that we can't trust black males or we can't trust police officers, and yeah, we 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 have experiences, but again, how can I? make the most optimal create the most optimal outcome in this moment that's even in relationships i've been hurt by black men (laughs) but i won't you won't ever hear me say i won't ever date another black male ever in my life i think that's myopic very myopic very narrow-minded so when i hear people put those type of conclusions around something i would suggest that they check their belief system because again when i when my son when my son tripped the alarm that police officer came and walked me through my home and made sure no one was in my home. If I had told him, no, you ain't come in my house and, and you a police officer and you a white male. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you know, but I feel safe because he had a gun. I didn't have a gun, you know, right. but my son was afraid again. This is when he was smaller, but he tripped the alarm, the house alarm, and they asked for us to stay outside, you know, to remain outside until they, you know, check the parameters and all of that. And then he said, do you mind if I walk you into your home? I really, I feel safe. I appreciate it. Does that negate the experience that I had growing up with the police officers that shoved my mom against the wall and my cousin against the wall when she was pregnant? No, 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 it does not. I'm not going to ever forget that, the way those white officers treated us um, in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I won't ever forget that. But it helped to heal it a little bit. Just having the experience as an adult, having my home, my home could have been um, um, burglarized, but I called the police. And and again, I just work off of the moment. I cannot bring that type of negativity with me because I'll act off of that. At least, again, that's just my belief system. I'm finna veer left real quick. Are you from Mount Pleasant, Texas? I'm from Mount Pleasant, Texas. So... The guest that I was talking about, where I coached some of his kids, the one that came out this week, this Monday, um, Monday, December 26th, for those of you who are listening two weeks from now, was Marion Fuller. Do you know Marion? Yes, I do. I love him. Because Mount Pleasant ain't but this big. That's what I told him. <laughs> it ain't but the two. We were in school together. I think he was in, he graduated the year after me. Okay, so he was the so. guest that was just on. I coached two of his boys and his daughter, I think, actually. Uh, and he was my last guest. And we talked about a lot of stuff coming from a small town and things like that. So, see, and I meant to ask you earlier when you said just a small town country girl from East Texas. I was like, what small town in East Texas? Because I had a yeah. feeling. But it's Mount Pleasant. Okay. Yeah, but that shaped. World. Yeah, it is. It is. But that shaped a lot. And Marion has the same um, disposition. He's very laid back. Yes. But I think Mount Pleasant gave us that. I mean, we just take people as they are. Simple. We had one high school, one movie theater. Things were simple, you know? And that's, I've never seen him different, you know? So that may just be a byproduct. I laid back, um, you know, take things as they are. Maybe a byproduct of being, uh, not being from the city. I don't know. It, it may be, because I've seen him in athletic environments as the athlete, as the parent, as the coach. I've seen, he, he's always calm, cool, collected, relaxed. Okay, so that leads me into into this next question. How can we, and again, I'm, this is not a part of my normal questions. This, I'm going just straight off feeling. How can we get to a place where we are, or how do you teach comfortability? How do you teach being true to who you are authentically and allowing others to do that as well and then using our authenticness to create a better society what can we do as people to like spread that what was the first part of the question how can we create how can you so you're authentic in who you are i'm authentic Mm -hmm. in who i am i am who i am all the time amongst everybody i hope you like it but if you don't i mean it is what it is sorry and I'm going to, if it's a flaw in me that I can fix and that I should fix, I will. If it's a flaw in you, 
it's nothing I could do about that. I just have to keep living as me. And hopefully you will come to a point where you feel the need to change, but it's not my job to change you. It's my job to accept you as who you are and allow you to grow and allow you the space and the time and the opportunity to grow. But if that also means I have to distance myself from who you are, that's okay too. But I can be authentic. You can be authentic and we can continue to try to grow and be better. How do we spread that amongst people because that includes failure, that includes upsetting people, that includes disappointing people. So how how do you go about specifically, how does Dr. Maisha Applewhite go about allowing people the space and opportunity to grow and be who they are and learn who they are? For me, I, I, I wasn't trained as an educator. Okay, I, I came from the juvenile department to where it was either black or white. There was no gray. I probably didn't have a lot of feeling. It, it was no feeling words. You know, it, it, it was, it was, can you meet these conditions of this probation? Okay. Period. I don't care how you feel about it. Right. So it was a shift for me, but I got exposed to more of, I was teaching psychology, um, started out. And then I started teaching, um, learning framework and learning framework really addresses critical thinking. So for me, in my opinion, I feel as if we need to teach more of critical thinking. And what do I mean by critical thinking? Walking through the stages of Bloom Taxonomy. What, how, when, where, what does it do? And if it don't do this, what else can it do? Can it do? Analysis, right? Knowledge, comprehension, application, evaluate, create. Also, you've heard me say it nine times, probably, ABC theory. I feel as if we started throwing people to the wolves if we talk critical thinking before everyone goes into that classroom, educators will talk critical thinking and rational motive behavior therapy. I feel as if we could do a little better. But since I can't go back and retrain the teaching module, I mean, the training modules, some professional development, right? Maybe we have to do that too later on, uh, uh, you and I, uh, Shelman. But since I can't do that, I just try to do it one student at a, at a time. And then every um, colleague that I'm around, I try to make sure that I spread that knowledge, right? Not saying that I know everything. I'm just saying this is what has worked for me. I try to make sure that I'm student-centered, that I first check myself before I go into the classroom. But I also make sure that I teach students how to process information. It is so hard for me. My son is a student at Horn High School and I'm so frustrated with them. Mesquite ISD, yes, it's on tape. I am frustrated with the oversight, but it's not just horn. It's just the education model period right now because of all the pressure that the education system is under. But teaching how to think has been ignored. How do you get to two plus two equals four? Yeah, you can get it, but how did you derive at that? And then if you don't have two plus two and you got two plus one, how does that impact the equation? And why does it impact the equation like that? So yes, I go back. I, I know it's, it's it's I'm frustrated with the process right now, but I believe it could change. Poco y poco, little by little. But the the ABC theory, making sure people are comfortable being themselves, and then making sure they know how to think. That's a big thing for me. So I'm I'm thinking about uh, starting uh, Moms Inc. My my big my best friend Takesha Brown wants me to start Moms Inc. with just those I two want premises. You to start Moms Inc. too <laughs> with just those two premises alone because I'm single parent raising a black male and she was like, "Wow, you've done such a great job with your son. You need to start Moms Inc." There's already an organization called Moms Inc. I pay homage to them, um, but something in that space of supporting moms as they continue to parent and grow themselves and deal with the education system and deal with raising emotionally healthy children, right? Um, so I went off on a tangent, but thank you for that. <laughs> for that, But yes, two, two, two tools. You got Blooms and ABC Theory. Absolutely. We gonna have lunch one day. <laughs> we gonna we have gonna lunch. Talk. We gonna set something up so that we can set something up. Yes. We have to. Um, you and I are like souls. <laughs> I just love you. <laughs> because, and I'm going to tell you how the world is small again. I have two nieces and a nephew that graduated from Horn in the last five years. 
And I have not been pleased with who they are as people. Like there's so much missing when they finish. And I feel like graduation, you should be able to have certain skills and the ability to think for yourself should be one of those skills. And they just, I know so many kids from Horn because I coach out of that area. And so I know so many kids, not just my nieces and nephews, but my players, my just mentees that I, that I work with and talk to on a regular, they don't know how to think for themselves when they leave Mesquite ISD. And I love Mesquite ISD because I think they really want to do what is best for students. I just I've had don't some principals that have been very kind to me. I've had a principal been very kind. Like I said, I think they want to do what's best. I just don't think they are either they're not allowed to do what's best by TEA or they're not able to do what is best. It's 3,200 3, children there. Chillman, it's 3,200. I found that out. And only about a thousand of them really want to do what's right. Like you, you, three thousand will do what's right. Only about a thousand want to. That other two thousand does because it's easier to just do what's right than to do what's wrong. Like if you live life long enough, you realize doing right is just easier. Like it's it's less consequences if you just follow them. And they discover, by the time they get to high school, they have discovered, if I just blend in and follow the rules, ain't nobody going to bother me. I'll make it through, I'll graduate, and I won't have learned a single thing, but I would have finished. So then you have those 200 who don't want to do what's right and will not, and they don't make it. And it is what it is. I just, I want to be able, to, I really want to reach those 200. That's my passion. But I want to help that 2,000. Like, as I've gotten older, and so I, I really want to work with them. But like you said, I think, I think we need to start teaching kids how to think for themselves and how to think about others. Because everyone's situation isn't your situation. And if you can learn to, because you're never going to be able to feel what they feel. But if you can understand why they feel what they feel, if you can understand the equation, like you said, two plus two equals four is simple. The fact that one plus one is two plus two, or one plus one is two, meaning one plus one plus one plus one is four, or one plus one plus two is four, that is a different level of knowledge. Wow. And that's understanding, right? That's, that's being able to break it down. So that's the difference in being able to say speeding equals ticket versus if I'm going five over the speed, if the speed limit's 35 and I'm going 53, that's me personal experience. When I see the cop, I can't be upset that he stops me. That's one plus one plus one plus one. That's not two plus two. Two plus two is if I'm speeding, I should get a ticket. One plus one plus one plus one is I see that I'm speeding and I see the cop, which means he sees that I'm speeding. So I'm wow. going to get a and I can't be upset. See, we teach two plus two, but we don't teach one plus one plus one plus one. And I think if we could get there, then we would have kids who are no longer angry at cops. They're no longer arguing on Facebook. They're no longer cutting off ties with friends that they that should be lifelong friends. But they but over a small misunderstanding, they create a lifelong bridge that shouldn't have been burned. And, and and this is we'll have to uh, uh, go on this note. There are four components of emotional intelligence. We own this four. It just came to me. Okay, there are four com components of emotional intelligence. It's not on back. It's not on the back of any of my degrees. It's not on the back of a high school diploma. It's not on the back of your driver's license. It's not on the back of your birth certificate. There are four components of emotional intelligence, and we're not taught that. Two of them have to do with yourself and two of them has to do with how you manage other people. One is self-awareness and one is emotional management, um, self-management, okay? So I'm aware of my feelings and then I'm gonna manage those feelings. That's exactly what you did with that one plus one because you recognized you were speeding and you recognized that you needed to calm down because you took responsibility. Number three, and this has to do with how we treat other people, is 
social awareness. Mm -hmm. I realize as a police officer, I realize I got trauma, but I'm going to treat this person as a human, but I'm acknowledging I have trauma. That's exactly what you did. That's social awareness. And then number four is relationship management. I'm going to help you manage us right? Mm -hmm. That'll help in every situation, whether that's the job, whether you've been stopped by the police, whether that's your husband or wife, I'm going to help you manage us. If I see you upset, I'm not going to come in talking loud, okay? If I see you afraid, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I speak slowly, I speak calmly, right? I know you don't like Blacks, so I'm going to come in here and purchase my drink from the convenience store and get the loan. You understand? Mm -hmm, I might have to beat mm -hmm. that out, but I'm passionate about that. I help you help us in our relationship, no matter what the relationship is. I didn't like the way my gynecologist treated me. I'm going to let her know the next time because this I have to see you again. I don't appreciate the way you treated me, but I do. I may have to understand that she might've been with a patient who just got diagnosed with ovarian cancer. I don't know, but that has to do with the relationship management. There's four components of emotional intelligence. Two of them have to do with yourself and two of them have to do with how you treat others. Self-awareness, self-management, relationship management, and uh, social awareness. Yes, yes. Now, I'm going to let Dr. Mahisha Applewhite go <laughs> because she has another meeting after this one. But I want y'all to know there will be a part two. I just That's don't know when it'll be. But it will be a part two. I normally ask, well, what is your public servant's announcements? What is your one piece of advice? I'm not even going to ask you that. I want you to hold that thought. Oh, but I do. Okay. Well, go ahead. What's your, what is your no, public servant's it. announcements to the people? We educators have to stay strong. Continue with the self-love, self-care. Stay strong and continue to build your craft. See, yes. Now. All of those things. And now I'm going to let her go. Because, uh, again, I said, they're going to be a part two. Hell, y'all, they're going to be a part three and a part four. <laughs> Me and Dr. Applewhite have a lot to discuss. And y'all so. just get to be a privy to the conversations. I appreciate you so much for coming in and sitting with me and talking with me and just sharing the knowledge and information and putting titles and theories behind practice so that people can understand that this is not just basic level, this is high level thinking that we're giving them. And it's simple, but if they can get the simple, then they can understand the complex. And I just appreciate you breaking it down for us to a place where we can all understand it at an equal level. Thank you. I really appreciate the invite. Thank you. Yes, yes ma'am. Thank you so much. And I appreciate y'all for continuing to listen. Keep listening back. We'll have more guests. I will continue trying to feed you all.